Hi everyone, and welcome to the third take of episode 53 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. After a bit of a rocky start, I'm joined by Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Hello again. Third time. <laughs> Hello, Len. Hey, how's it, everyone? Just uh, a note to the listeners: Kevin's been drinking, and no. he's, he's very uh, he's very grumpy tonight. Uh, drinking coffee and so on. Yes, Maybe a hangover, there, 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 there might have been a glass of wine in between there. Maybe it's a legend. <laughs> <laughs> but Kev, I, I stole your intro. Carry on, man. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, tonight we uh, just having a, another sexful episode. And the idea is to talk a bit about hardware um, in this cloud era. Uh, what does it matter? Is it still relevant? What's the stuff we need to think about? Um, or even just some stuff we never knew about the hardware that runs our production apps. And uh, this was kind of sparked by, uh, well, I guess in part by an article uh, Len, you found on highscalability.com about how PayPal scaled to doing most of their transactions on just eight servers. Yeah, and I mean that's that's incredible. I I was just completely blown away by that, and I thought, how easy must it be to manage only eight servers? You know, for especially for a an organization that's PayPal size, and I was just like, wow, those must a be some really really beefy machines. So, you know, maybe there is uh, what do they call it um, scaling up. Maybe there is something to this idea of scaling up your hardware. Yes, and I mean, in that article, they also kind of mention the WhatsApp architecture when Facebook bought them, scaling to, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people, and also just a few few machines. What's and that? I guess I wonder... Was that WhatsApp, sorry? Yes. Uh, wasn't that, wasn't there like huge claim to fame that they just ran it with like 15 engineers or something? I don't, I don't recall anything about the number of servers they've got. No, it was part of, part of that was also the number of servers because they were running Erlang and uh, they were running over two million connections per server. Wow, that's incredible! Uh, there's an article about that. I'll dig that up for the show notes. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I think WhatsApp as a company was like forty people or something, all in all. Like, yeah, the fifteen engineers and I don't know what other people did. I mean, I'm in no disrespect, you know, like. It's not like they were running like huge amounts of financial transactions or whatnot, but yeah, it was small, 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 small. Um, <clears throat> it was insane. So I guess kind of that is, I guess on the one end, you could kind of argue, yes, it's uh, the technology they chose. So they used Erlang, the mythical scaling yeah, machine okay, that will okay, just okay. make so, everything. So here's, here's the um, stats on WhatsApp. So they've got hundreds of servers. They've got over 8,000 cores. They've got a couple of hundred terabytes of RAM. That's a fairly large footprint. Yeah, but I, I wonder if that's now the calling and stuff came after Facebook bought them when they were just a little... Okay, but anyway, they were also just like a few people running things. But to pull yeah. us back to the to the hardware thing, I was kind of thinking like, is it... There's two parts to it. Like you can argue that, you know, you can run 2 million connections per server uh, on an Erlang VM. Or like what PayPal's doing, eight JVMs um, instances, because they did everything with uh, Scala and Acker. Well, not everything, this specific big chunk of their uh, infrastructure. And that, like, I mean, I guess that's way more than just the language. That's kind of like understanding how your hardware actually works and getting the most of it and not slice and dicing it up into a gazillion different pieces. Yeah, I think there is that side of it, but... Uh... 
Also, you you made an interesting comment in the opening. Does it matter? Like, do we need faster hardware, or or have we have we got enough speed now? But that was an interesting comment that you made. So I don't know if you want to elaborate. I'm, I know, like from from Kevin's point of view, he's a software guy, and hardware is just abstracted away somewhere, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I just move sliders. But you know, is 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 hardware fast enough today? What do you guys think? Well, I guess from my side is, I think so, but I mean, I guess it couldn't hurt if it got faster, um, but I guess I can also get more miles out of just tuning the software, at least at first, because the machines are so insanely fast. It's probably only slow if something is slow because of what I did, not because of what the machine did. Yeah, so... There are two problems there, I think. And one is, um, you know, we brought up Erlang earlier, and there's that great talk by, what's his name, Joe Armstrong, the Erlang guy, about the mm-hmm. sort of like how how dire the problem is today. Contrasts, I think, uh, if I forget the sort of date, sort of like a 1986 um, HP PC, which takes 60 seconds to boot versus, you know, a modern laptop. It goes through the numbers, and the, the TLDR of it all is that a modern laptop is about 10,000 times faster than that 1986 PC. Um, so we should be booting in about 60 milliseconds, right? Until yes. reality sets in, right? Well, it's an indication of, like, A, how bad our software is. And... <laughs> Well, really, you know, like our software is just kind of so, so bloated and crazy, which is, um, I think you're saying, Kenneth, that uh, hardware is so fast. And yes, it is on one level, but it also, like our software is just not keeping up with the speed of the hardware. That is a huge problem. Yeah, that I definitely, definitely agree with. I think most of the, the gains now can probably, yeah, it comes from us. And there's a huge hit to all this. Um, I mean, as nice as all this cloud thing is, there's a huge hit if you want to do like something like really, really performant. Uh, um, you know, as opposed to going through several layers of abstractions. You know, like some thin OS and a hypervisor, and then a VM, and then like Docker on top of it. Like all the stuff adds. Um, and I guess people don't think about it because it's so easy to just scale out um, more of these things because you've got an API call. But yeah, I guess, is it not in the end, maybe equally as easy just to try and push to get a little bit more juice out of a server. And also, I guess, like, also understand how this works because another part of what that set up the topic for the show was that that link you shared with me about the non-uniform memory access and that whole idea of physically where like how the memory and the cpus are co-located on a server board so i like i mean honestly back in the day when i rigged up a few small servers i thought that was just aesthetically pleasing you know like the way the things were laid out like yes your two cpus and there's these different banks of memory i did not realize that the server the hardware is actually trying to keep the memories like close to the cpu and if you exceed the capacity of a memory bank that there's an actual huge hit of going across to the other side of the motherboard to get to the other memory bank and possibly even going through another CPU. 
um, to get to its memory controller to get to its bank. And that was just uh, that. And with that example you gave of a, a for loop doing some kind of little computation, and suddenly that thing when running on data bigger than what the memory bank has to offer, your whole algorithm can fall flat because now there's this huge performance hit. I mean, I mean the numbers are so small, but like it's still like an exponential performance hit traveling you know, all the way across the silicon somewhere else to get a piece of data. And that must be baffling if you're trying to do some high performance work, you know, like high frequency trading or something. And you go like, but this machine has enough memory, like it's got enough CPU, like what are we waiting for? What's wrong with this algorithm? And then it was this weird thing that you can't match like developer parity, you know, like our laptop parity to production server because we don't have those kind of banks and whatnot, whatnot. And it just made me realize, like, I, for one, don't actually know at a low level what all these moving bits and pieces are and how that affects, like, the software, really, and how to accommodate for that. Mm. There, there's a there's a really great uh, Stack Overflow question. I'll dig it up for the, for the show notes. And it relates to uh, a problem where a guy has array that he's trying to search it's just a kind of brute force search he's got a for loop runs through this array but it's quite a large array like a hundred thousand elements or something and he he writes the same piece of code in in i think plus plus and in java the ones with a jvm and the ones you know just kind of raw on the hardware and um got two versions of this program the first version is just load up the array and try and like brute force search it. Second version loads up the array, sorts it, so it goes through a whole sort, and then he tries to brute force search it. The the second version that does the sort and then the search is faster than the version that does just does the brute force search. So this like long article until eventually a hardware guy like jumps in and says, well it's to do with you know the the cache being warmed up, and what happens is when he, when he does the the sort of the array, it actually warms the cache up. Then the search is like all running out of the cache, not doing direct memory access, and like it actually turns out to be way faster. Wait, so are you saying that the sort and the search together were faster than a brute force search on its own? Well, because the yeah, actually, the search then would be a binary search, I suppose. Yeah, it, it's. No, the search is just a like for i in you know array, like walk through the array and yep, try to find but I mean, the element. After you've after you've sorted it, you can no, then no, do the, a binary the, search. The search is exactly the same. Oh, wow. oh no, okay. same algorithm. It, it like literally like just adds in an arrays dot sort at the top before the for loop, and that version is I think if I remember correctly like twice as fast as just doing the for loop on its own. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that's such a nice little example of this. I, I, but I guess we also don't need to go like on a witch hunt now and go <laughs> and sort every collection, uh, you know, in, in our code before trying to... Well, well, that's that's not to, the answer because, I mean, it, it works in that little example program. Yes. You know, um, but the point is, like, you, if if you're looking for that kind of performance, you have to be aware what's going to happen with the level one and the level two cache, especially when you're dealing with a big chunk of data. Yeah. I had this fascinating, or I read this fascinating analogy for the different CPU caches that made me think about it a bit more. Um, 
and Here i guess the memory as well maybe it was in that one of those articles uh, <clears throat> basically saying like so the level one cache that was right on the same like silicon as a cpu it's basically if you imagine you're in a office cubicle it's your desk with your files like you kind of know where things are and you can reach it and then the level two cache would be the equivalent of somebody that just walks around all the cubicles with a bunch of most commonly accessed files for everybody on the floor and you could ask him for stuff and he can and like he could ask jeff for the document and and he can give you the document and he'll just keep on making like sure everything's around and then the layer three caches basically you've got to ask jeff because he's the only one that knows and he's got to go off to like a filing room to go fulfill your request and come back and bring you the document that you needed and that's <clears throat> and that's also why they helped explain this the, the sizes of the different caches like that so your desk can only take that much that's why the level one caches are so small but jeff's trolley can handle a bit more than your desk so level two cache is like you know a few times bigger and then finally that storage room is is way bigger and can handle more stuff yeah but, the, la but the, the latency is crazy yeah yeah, Kenny, you sent me that tweet ages ago. I was referencing it earlier in the prequel. Uh, L1 cache is a beer in hand. L3 is a beer in the fridge. Main memory is walking to the store and disk access is flying to another country. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so there's that great um, kind of list of numbers that every programmer should know. I don't know if you guys have seen that from Peter Norvig. I'll definitely drop yes. drop it in the um, show notes. Just about you know, sort of when when you're on the CPU and you're getting to level one cache and level two cache, you you're dealing with nanoseconds, right? That's just yes. an access. Um, as soon as you try to lock anything, and I mean you know if you, if we talk about lock free algorithms, as soon as we try to take a mutex or any kind of lock unlock with a semaphore at the CPU level, that bumps us up to a hundred nanoseconds. <clears throat> which is equivalent so, sorry so it's potentially already like nearly a hundredfold yeah, more exactly so to, to do to do a fetch from the cache is a hundred times faster than just taking a lock or doing that fetch that, that's kind of crazy main main memory reference is also around 100 nanoseconds to what, what's super interesting is how fast ethernet is compared to a lot of the hardware that we have to deal with um, there's there's a classic quote from John Carmack where he says it's faster to to do a ping across the Atlantic, say from New York to London, to send a packet from New York to London, than it is to get a pixel onto his screen. <laughs> you just think about all the layers that that pixel has to go through, from the CPU to memory. It then gets copied across the bus onto the graphics card. The graphics card's got to do some interpretation of it turn it into some sort of video signal and eventually it gets to the screen and the screen itself has refresh rates and stuff that you've got to deal with yeah which are all 16 measured. milliseconds that's your magic number 16.6 yeah. <laughs> there you go you know now you know i don't know what your ping times are in in london to new i can check for you Oh, like have a look so yeah so, i mean 16 milliseconds to get a pixel onto the screen versus getting a packet all the way across the atlantic couple of thousand kilometers versus like you know half a meter it's a kind of interesting set of numbers right yeah that is quite insane actually so <clears throat> you mentioned that the the block free algorithms yeah um 
what's a common example of one um that that that's like i don't know that people might have encountered or that they might use that they don't even know they use um i don't think that if you've got one off the bat <laughs> i mean the most sort of popular one i know of is that lmax trading algorithm uses the the lmax um block free message passing structure yes that's like a they built that it's a ring buffer, I think. Yeah, something, something like that, a, a lock-free ring buffer. That's correct. And, I mean, they were they were able to deal with millions of transactions per second. No. Yeah, there's a... I'll add a link to a... There's an AC Radio episode where they chat to one of the guys that built that LMAX system. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so, I mean, from my point of view, hardware is still so, so slow. It's ridiculously slow. Even when you get up to, like big, big servers with, say, four CPUs and a couple of terabytes of RAM. As you were alluding to earlier, there are even like problems internally there where it takes time for the CPUs to access RAM. So there's kind of optimizations in the hardware where they're splitting up the RAM between the CPUs and the whole physical problem of how do you kind of minimize the length of the copper wires on the motherboard so that you can get, you know, chunks of memory closer to the the cpus but then you end up dividing the ram up between the cpus so if, even if you've got a machine with let's say uh, you know simple example you've got two cpus and 16 gigs of ram each cpu kind of ends up with with eight gigs of ram and if you're dealing with more than eight gigs of data you start to to hit this um this problem of going across the across the bus to the other bank of ram these are still unsolved problems. We still don't have really great answers to them. It would probably be impossible. I guess the first step would be as to jam the memory straight onto the the CPU. That would be a, a different challenge, potentially a disaster. Well, no, not necessarily. It's just um, it's a cost problem, right? The the more stuff you put into the silicon, ideally you'd like, you know, imagine a, a cube of silicon like. 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters or something with everything on it, including your like core storage. So SSDs and that sort of stuff, just moving into this big cube of silicon. That's where we'd like to get to. But if you start to try and imagine what the complexity is inside that cube of silicon, that's, that's the sort of design problem we're facing is how to, how to structure the internals of that cube of silicon. And how to keep it cool, I guess, because the more stuff you pack in there, the faster the stuff can go through it, the more heat it will dissipate. Well, I'm guessing, I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, and then that's why we're getting to these, you know, lower and lower um, fabrication like uh, sizes, like 14 nanometer sizes on Intel's roadmap, but it's it's even smaller. So you're trying to get things smaller and smaller so that you have less distance to move things so that therefore you ha you need less energy to move things around and as a consequence generates less heat but you're right i mean even if you've got like a centimeter by a centimeter of silicon that that scale of uh transistors and things that you can pack in there is is phenomenal because it's going to generate a significant amount of heat one of the one of the interesting stats i heard recently was that since 2010 of consuming has remained constant even though the amount of processing power and now i'm just talking about data centers in the u.s specifically um where we have numbers on them 
the amount of like CPU power has, of course, followed Moore's law. Times we have eight times more processing power available at the same energy budget, which is which is actually incredible. But still, data centers in in the U.S. Uh, account for something like five or six percent of the national energy budget, I and mean, that's pretty significant. You know, I think that it's Google and Facebook and all that kind of stuff, which is hard to uh, say that that five or six percent of the energy budget is going towards manufacturing or something. Yeah, that is quite insane. Google searches, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and the fact that they could like keep on growing. And keep it the the input the same. If it's that big a part of like the total production, that's that's well job well done. Eh? Yes, exactly. So I mean, the, you know, the amount of effort that Intel and these guys are putting into creating low power, lower and lower power machines, with you know, while still trying to stay with Moore's law, something. Hey, kudos to them. They they seem to be doing a pretty good job of it so far. Other than like thinking about CPUs, I mean that's very low level. Like actually, maybe to, to kind of close off of thinking about um, CPUs and, and boards, like the locality of the server. Like, <clears throat> what else is there to think about that's kind of like important? And I guess maybe f- philosophically think about. Not, I don't, I don't think I want everybody now to take a week off to go <laughs> benchmark the hell out of their code, but just you know, like what else is there? Do you think it might be a good awareness, you know, like the the different kind of storage that we can put in a server? Like, is it always just now we have to go for SSDs, you know, or is there still a good place for spinning disks um, in this world? And maybe, I don't know, the different kinds of memory and stuff that's available on the service, how that kind of impacts how you would build, like, more performant code. And it's a bit open-ended, sorry. So... Uh, I want to just chime in two cents into this. So I, I agree with Len that um, computers are not fast enough. Uh, the hardware is still slow compared to what we what we really want it to be. And where we see that, or where I at least see that come through most prominently, is not in um, business and servers and things like that, but in gaming. And, um, you know... The kind of hardware that we're putting together now to be able to run games in real time, and still aren't actually getting true, um, you know, true realism of the kind of processing power we would need for a proper kind of virtual reality uh, setup around us. The software is pushing the hardware. Hardware is not waiting for software to catch up in any way. But I mean, if I can strap my iPhone to my face, that's pretty convincing already and i mean it's not the fastest device in the world it's a little arm chip um with a bunch of other like processes to help do very specific things i mean i guess given like i remember the days when i still played games on pcs like isn't that one of those things that it will never be fast enough it's just kind of like this violent circle of um these people you know like the the gamers the the software developers the, the demand more and yet the consumers like because the consumers demand more and I don't know it's just like this uh, cannon that's aimed at itself kind of thing where you know like <laughs> I guess other problems um, you know would a game be affected like by the speed of light problem for networking for instance it's that kind of my thinking but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, what do you imagine if if it was if the hardware was like exponentially fast? If it took a huge jump now, like how do you see that impact that's got for for playing games? Like, what would that world look like to you? Well, I think that at some point we're going to get, and this can become very philosophical, but we'd get to a point that we'd be able to simulate reality. Uh, and I think that the idea is that we've got software and we've got developers pushing hardware to um, to build the latest games. You know, we've got these AAA games, Battlefield 1's coming, we've got the new Call of Duty's coming. And, and those are um, those are still way off really the immersive feel of you know you're not actually there you know that you're still looking at a screen yeah you know you still have a keyboard and mouse in your hand um oculus is making some interesting strides in the hardware uh, of the immersiveness side of that but the software to actually run a game in oculus uh, that's really convincing is uh, I, I don't know I, I haven't seen anything that's really convincing yet well uh, it, it's 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 getting there but it's not it's still a far distance of what reality is like. But isn't this exactly what we're talking about now? Is that the the, the graphics cards driving your your Oculus? What do you what do you call the thing? Headset. Oculus um, Rift. Yeah, but I mean it's a headset, right? So you, yeah. you you plug that into some sort of graphics card. That graphics card, I mean, the amount of stuff it has to deal with to render a, a full three D experience is is kind of nuts. Um, did you guys see the announcement of the new Radeon? Um, I think it's just a dev kit out now where it has on the actual graphics card, it has one terabyte of SSDs. You guys see that? No. Sorry, I missed that. It had what? It's got a terabyte SSD on the graphics card. <laughs> yeah, so you, you can pick these things up, I think, for about $10,000 at the moment. Just purely a dev kit. Get back. <laughs> oh, you're going to get one. Good. <laughs> Let us know. But um, you know, and then you have to ask, like, why are why are they even doing that? And it's it's back to that problem Kenneth was talking about earlier about the sort of physical locality of the memory to the graphics device. Assuming that what you want to do with that terabyte of SSD storage on the graphics card is start preloading textures and. 3D models and so forth right there on the graphics card so that it can start processing them with much, much lower latency. And just also the quantity of stuff that you need to be able to render anything close to reality. So, and yeah, it, so I'm, I'm not sure what the current state of affairs is in hardware on that, but the um, so graphics card will still have to go through your front side bus to get to anything in memory in your memory bank. Uh, no, no. Um, so, graphics cards uh, have DMA. They, oh, they've got DMA. Yeah, okay. most so, most stuff has DMA, and the the CPU plays a very small role there. It just kind of um, orchestrates access, and then um, gets notified. There's a whole sort of bus protocol where the graphics card will say, "Look, I need the next piece." CPU just tells it where to fetch it and main memory. But again, we, we've got a whole lot of protocols and interactions that needs to happen of where do I actually go and find this, where having it in the SSD or whatever memory it is that's going to be on these um, on these cards in future reduces that latency. That's correct, yeah. Uh, so you, you can yeah. preload. But you're also dealing with a, a kind of quantity scaling problem now, right? Where you're trying to render, say, a Call of Duty environment 
into one of these Oculus Rift headsets and the, the, the sheer number of three-dimensional objects and, and polygons that you've got completely crazy. I mean, the number of textures and stuff. I mean, some of those Call of Duty scenes where you're running through blown-up city and there's grass on the ground and stand and look down at the grass and you can see the individual blades of grass. And but there's the thing. It's also and look down at the grass. It's the, it's the other direction. It's the input back to the graphics card and whatever else is running uh, running the game. I don't even know how much the CPU would be involved in some of these things. No, the, the but, graphics cards are doing almost most of that processing. I mean, Ken mentioned yeah. earlier the using the iPhone. You know, the one of the things that the guys did with to make the iPhone kind of responsive is offload almost all of the processing to the GPU. The, the actual CPUs inside an iPhone and most modern kind of phones are actually terrible. They're they're really really not that great and the the gpu takes up most of the the brunt work gpus can do these kind of linear operations like loading stuff off storage and displaying a an image on the screen of an iphone is almost entirely a gpu operation oh and all the css uh, processing on iphones are handled by a chip not by the cpu or the gpu it's yeah. like that, that like a piece of silicon that like does css it's insane. Really? They've got like a, what they call an, an ASIC to do CSS. That's pretty cool. Yeah, dedicated. What's the right word? A code processor or something. But, uh, what they call an application-specific chip yeah. to build for these things. They're called ASICs, yeah. So, so, so to, to, come at, to come at the gaming thing from a different point of view, Kevin, is like what is the resolution of reality and, and what is the... The, the frame rate of the the human optical system, you know, because that's your end goal, right? If you can match that, you can match the frame rate or the the resolution needed for the human optical system. Then you're then you're on a winning streak, right? Because you can't get better than that. We can't see better than what our eyes can perceive. Yeah, that, that's your end goal. Yeah, what those numbers are, I don't know. Uh, so I think that's about six thousand DPI. About six thousand. You know, they they talk about uh, what's it, I mean. It, it, I guess it depends how you measure DPI, like linear DPI. What what the Retina screen on the iPhone is what? Uh, Three hundred twenty-six. Yeah, linear DPI, right? So if you think of a square inch, you can fit uh, whatever that number is. I think it's about six thousand pixels into that square inch. Then then you're you're approaching it. And I, as far as I know, the human visual cortex runs at about a hundred hertz. Once you can yeah, run just, at about, it's definitely more than sixty. Yeah, it's look. We we can get fooled because of what do you call it—the after image on the retina. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, I can flash things at about twenty-four frames a second. I think Disney discovered that. And uh, or yeah, you've got to interlace it them, and you've got and part of that is also things like uh, the appearance of a blur. Uh, tricks the brain into perceiving motion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, quick aside on that: twenty-four frames per second. Um, that was the lowest frame rate that they could have under consensus that people couldn't see the flicker, and it was purely done to manage production costs. Like they just wanted to use yes. as few frames as possible because it was so damn expensive. So, yeah, later the NTSC must went up to twenty-nine point seven. Um, but yeah, like nine seven. Yeah, yeah. So I think you, you want um, 100 frames per second at, at 360 DPI, 
a linear DPI, and then you then you're on a winner. But now, if you think of say a thirty inch monitor, and you work out just the number of pixels that go into that monitor, then for each pixel you need um, the red, green, blue values, and you need like alpha channels and transparency and all that kind of stuff. So that's just purely at the sort of one dimensional layer to get a that's like however many bazillions of pixels that is. Um, you need a, a 256 bytes or, or bits of memory for each pixel screen. So that's just the sort of one layer to get things onto the screen. Of course, then when you're dealing with your your actual model in the background and working out, like as you were saying earlier, Kevin, looking down, working out what my point of view is, becomes like an incredibly crazy process. I have to store that entire 3D world with all its textures work out which uh, vertices are visible, what their textures are, all the rest of it. And I've got to do this in in real time, within within 10 milliseconds yeah, per 16. frame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, 10 if you had 100. Yeah, so exactly. So it's got to be a 10. Um, and get that onto the screen, flicker-free. <laughs> it's absolutely nuts. What what's the resolution of the Oculus Rift headset at the moment? It's 1080p for each eye, right? I'm not sure. Uh, I, can't I, haven't, I haven't used it since the dev kit, and that was fairly low res. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I think uh, so. It's it's double 1080p, right? I mean, it's it's kind of interesting to go and do the numbers and work out what the bandwidth is and how much data kind of has to be shunted through the entire system. But first of all, off disk, you've got to load all that stuff up somewhere. Got to buffer it, get get it into a format to work with, and then in real time be able to render that to the displays. Okay, I've got it here. It's 1080 by 1200 per eye. Yeah, so, 10, so 1080p, right? Uh, no, much lower than 1080p. Uh, 1080 by 1200. 1080p would be 1920 by 1200. Uh, no, sorry, 1080p would be 1920 by 1080. Uh, so the, overall, it's not much larger than um hd but it's also at 90 hertz 90 hertz yeah yeah that's fast okay <laughs> yeah so yeah you have to start getting into some serious numbers there about how much actual data has to shunt through that system get anything near so at, at that like resolution and and refresh rate that that oculus obviously um doesn't use like Bluetooth or, or Wi-Fi or something. It's probably it's probably cabled in USB three kind of shit or not. I'm sure. Yeah, Thunderbolt yeah, it probably needs yeah. DVI. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, HDMI or something. No, just I don't know. I guess for me, I like using my imagination. Um, and I mean, no disrespect. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, but remember, Ken, that 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 layer that that displays things on the actual like little screens inside the headset is just the 2d data right yes that's just that's just the frame that's so it's 90 times those two screens per second that have to go through that channel that's probably not that huge where where it gets crazy is is the 3d to 2d stuff that happens inside the video card Mm. Every you know every like what do you what did you say, uh, Kevin? Sixteen point six milliseconds. At sixty frames per second, at sixteen point six. Yeah. So every sixteen point six milliseconds, a frame has to go across that wire to the screen. 
So that you know that you can work out whatever that bandwidth is. But the the crazy part is the internal stuff that's happening from the CPU, GPU, and the main memory. Try and keep that pipeline full, and respond to sensor input from the from the rift as it's as you're looking looking around. Because I think exactly, if, yeah. if you have, but there's also there's also another part that in terms of real time is that it's not just keeping a pipeline full; it's that you can't actually overfill it because as soon as you overfill it and it's trying to clear the queue store, then you've got lag because the frame that it's rendering was actually drawn to or, or thirty or forty milliseconds ago. So you've got you've got a synchronization problem to deal with as well. Yeah, because otherwise, I guess you could give people motion sickness <laughs> if they're turning their head and, yeah. and the yeah. wheel doesn't come immediately. Like, well, have you ever noticed that in games where you move your mouse and there's uh, it feels like a just a little bit of a lag on the mouse? That's normally if normally caused by um, overfilling the pipe with frames to draw. Oh, okay. So what does that mean? You you're like looking in one direction. I'm like filling the uh, pipeline up with frames of what I see by looking in that direction. Then I move the mouse, which now says, oh, hang on, you should see this house instead of the field. But I've already rendered like three frames of the field, um, which then have to clear out of the display before I can show you the house. In a nutshell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's why you'll get that like kind of delay as those extra three frames have to kind of shown to you before you get into the actual movement okay that's yeah. quite an interesting problem yeah and it's a, yeah, a so huge penalty that just I've... because your graphics card is able to push out say 300 frames per second doesn't mean that you're going in the first place you're not going to see all 300 if especially if you've only got a screen that's running 60 hertz and uh, if it's pushing out any more than 60 uh, you're going to get input lag ah i see what you're saying yeah, that's a tricky problem. I'm so glad we're not writing games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this makes me want to go write games. <laughs> I hear what, like Unity. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Press compile. <laughs> yeah, but I guess it's... Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm just, just interrupt you there and say that one of the like greatest exp- like kind of feelings of, you know, wow in my life has been when I've just had like a piece of code being able to do something to a piece of hardware. I was going to say switch on LED. Yeah, yeah, even just even just that. But then, you know, take it further and like sort of be able to take that video image and stick it into someone's eye. That's kind of, that's a really amazing mm. direct feedback loop that's, that, that's really fulfilling in a way. I just remembered something, and it's kind of related to the games. Is I mean, you're saying like the hardware, and I mean it's 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 huge stresses um, on the hardware that these graphics programming like demands. But at the same time, do you guys remember the the demo scene where you used to get these 64k little demos of procedural graphics that's like insanely well done with sound? I mean, I don't know what. The people actually did in that demo scene to get it right but surely a, a lot of this performance stuff can still be like handled algorithmically instead of just you know waiting for that next radeon card or the next direct x chip or something or well, it's, a, it... it's it's a trade-off right because uh what those guys were doing you, you're absolutely right is in that 64k of ram you didn't have enough um 
memory to to store the textures you needed. For. You understand what I mean by textures, yes, right? Yes. You know, so I can draw a I, lot. Yeah, so I can draw this like three D cube like spinning in space. And then I want to, you know, put like a cool pattern onto the surfaces of that three D cube. Yes. I would need I would need that bitmap, you know. And um when I only have like a very limited amount of memory, I have to try to figure out a clever way to store that bitmap. And as you were saying, what a lot of those guys did was instead of storing the bitmap, they came up with some crafty little algorithm that generated the pixels. So the actual storage, if I had to store an algorithm, which let's was, you know, like a couple of bytes long versus, you know, the whatever 300 bytes or, you know, 500 bytes or 2K or whatever that the bitmap took up. I'd rather store the, you know, 10 bytes for the algorithm and just run that all the time. But it's a trade-off. So what you're doing is you're trading off memory versus CPU there. And and in the um, the demo scene, you know, the guys got very, very clever at being able to pack more and more stuff into the demos with uh, that sort of algorithmic compression. Yeah, and I know they exploited the, the CPUs oh, yeah, um, they, very they explicitly. Would... I mean... I had a, uh, what was the MMX with the SSE stuff, but I didn't have the SSE too. So a lot of the demos, the newer demos at that stage didn't work. And then later I got like some AMD uh, machine and then like the old demos stopped working and some of the new ones could work. And you're like, what the hell? And I never realized why actually until now. Right. Yes. <laughs> so just, I'm actually, this was my pick, but uh, I'm going to share it now anyway. So there was a video um, about a game was, the game was called Retro City Rampage. I don't know if you guys ever played that, uh, but uh, it was, I think it was originally made for 486 kind of PC, but it was a kind of 8-bit style game, you know, top-down view, run around like that. And uh, there's a video, it's about 10, 10 minutes on YouTube. Uh, where this guy took Retro City Rampage and rewrote it to work on a 6502 chip. So going back into the real constraints of running on an NES or a Commodore 64 or one of those kinds of machines. Um, and, and actually got it running on uh, on an old NES. Um, so really worth watching, but... Oh, well, that gave me a new perspective of like what was actually needed, what kind of tactics you can employ to actually get these games to work on such limited hardware. Yeah, some very very interesting uh, stuff and and uh, satisfying stuff to learn about and get it running. It's a yeah, that was the thing that really got me interested in learning some six five zero two. It was more Len, you mentioned six five zero two. Assembler to me, I think it was last year sometime. Um, and that plus this video that I came across around about the same time, uh, really got me interested in it. And you now there's a lot, to, a lot to learn in that, especially with the, with something like 6502 assembler, not x86, because, uh, as x86 has evolved, it's primarily become a target for compilers where 6502 was really intended to be written by humans mm. still. So the, uh, I'm not going to say it's readable, but uh, it's it's writable at least. <laughs> and weren't you reading? Isn't that a, most code? <laughs> weren't you reading a cool book about uh, game programming patterns at that time? Uh, yeah, I think I was. That was about the same time that I was reading about that. 
that was primarily C++, uh, applying the Gang of Four design patterns to game programming. Very cool. We should definitely add that to the... I think it was a pick. It was a pick, but it can be a pick again. <laughs> there are no rules. I'm, I'm an old guy. I've got no long-term memory. <laughs> Me neither. That's uh, why it's, we, it's out of cash. That's why we have a website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the website is our L3 cache. No, it's out of L3 cache. You're going to main memory now. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to kind of maybe touch on a, on a, a, a last kind of like performance thing to think of, or not performance, you know, like hardware implication. I guess it's kind of like we've alluded to it, but like just general bandwidth leaving the system. Uh, we kind of mentioned like the huge constraints on, um, you know, like graphics pipelines. I mean, that's a lot of internal bandwidth between the different chips and then eventually like some data leaves for your bazillion pixel screen. But there's that same irony, Len, like you said, being able to ping across the world, halfway across the world quicker than you can get something drawn on screen. Um, what's there kind of in the networking space to to think about that's kind of important um, or, or just the general awareness of, of using or abusing the networking that we have? In, in what sense, like the kind of stuff you send across the network? Yeah, and maybe utilizing it better. So maybe to put it to something more concrete, it's like we were talking this morning about HTTP2, like and falling back to like a multiplexed binary protocol and, and the huge gains that, that actually come from that. Um, where all these years before this, we were just sending ASCII over individual connections that got <laughs> torn down and built up for no apparent reason, over and over again. Yeah, in the, the the web itself, I mean, HTTP as a protocol is pretty inefficient in terms of the stuff it sends across the wire. And to me that we've kind of come full circle, I started off writing T network servers, like full, like full-blown client server C applications that send stuff around. And a lot of what we did was try to figure out the actual physical data on the wires characteristics what did what what were you actually sending across the wire because in those days a lot of the the links that you had were very very low uh, bandwidth and and high latency um networking today is incredibly fast there's there's so much bandwidth available i don't think that web has that many problems or the internet has that many problems with regards networking, and, and networking is just going absolutely berserk. Hundred gig. If if uh, if you see the the Amsterdam Internet Exchange now is hitting four terabytes, four terabits of of data through it, continuous basis. That's that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure where to really try and answer what you were asking. So it's basically kind of fast enough it's not a spot we particularly need to worry about to make things faster well it's for our end users it, it's also not a an area we have that much control over especially from a app or web developer point of view look if you're writing games and you're blizzard and you want to write the the networking protocols between your 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 custom game client and your custom game servers that's a whole different story and that's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. Right now, HTTP2 is the way to go. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of work has gone to it by Google and all the other guys. HTTP2 is very optimized for the modern web. But even though there's a, there's a difference between perceived latency and measured, uh, perceived latency and measured latency. 
and I'm going to go back to a gaming example just because that's something I'm super familiar with is, um, you know, you, you walk around a corner and next thing you shot by someone who could see you on their screen, yeah. uh, before you had walked around that corner. Um, and, you know, as, yeah, sure, things are getting faster, but, and, and we still, and we're working with connections where that's, the actual round trip of data between you and the other person in that game might be under 100 milliseconds. Uh, but it, the perception uh, can be that it's, it's far more than that. Uh, and, and that's where algorithmic, well, algorithmically you're going to have to have better prediction and things like that. As soon as you spend, you send one network packet down the wire, you're generally slowing things down substantially from um, the performance of just reading uh, out of memory, out of cache, things like that. So I think I think my the point I would just make there is, um, yes, the connections, the networking connections we have are damn fast, but uh, just because they're fast, they may not always be the right, or, or just uh, uh, abusing them may not be the best tactic. Yeah, don't don't abuse stuff. <laughs> no, I guess that... abusing the fact abusing the fact that you've got a connection, uh, like you say, that you can ping a packet uh, across the Atlantic faster than uh, you can get a pixel onto a screen. That still means, I guess there's an implication there that, yeah, the packet might have arrived at your computer, but it's still going to take a while to render the actual frame that um, shows the the effect of that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's, yeah, w when you're getting into those kinds of problems, you have to be aware of all those kind, all the different latencies. Like, what's it? Uh, 250 millis to read a megabyte from memory, 20 millis to, to send 2K bytes over a one gigabit network connection. And you have to trade those off against each other with whatever the effect is that you're going to have. Mm. But coming back to, to Ken's question, um, Networking in general is, I don't even know if it's as slow as Moore's Law. It's definitely um, equal to, if not greater than Moore's Law. I'm not, that feel, I'm not, uh, but, um, you know, 100 gig networking is coming. Terabit networking is coming. And it's coming faster than you think. Kevin, you, you left for London, like, relatively recently. And all of a sudden, everybody in South Africa is getting fiber. Say, so, well, it's great that you've got fiber over there. We've got fiber here too. Yeah, <laughs> they're digging up everywhere. Yeah, you know, five uh, G kind of. I'm things. sure they still don't have fiber down south of Cherbourg where I lived. <laughs> hey, you know, it's it's just. I mean, that's a that's a, an engineering problem and physically getting there and you know, laying, digging <laughs> up all the trenches. I mean, it's 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 physical labor that has to happen, and so it's just a question of time. But uh, once the fiber's in. The you know the networking bandwidth just increases on on two levels. One, if they can fix the transceivers on each end of the fiber, and then the second thing is the software. I saw recently some guys upgrading. I think it was a 300 gig transatlantic fiber cable to a 1.2 terabit cable just by um, changing the software end of the link. Mm. You know, so net networking is going to get crazy, and and very soon now we'll get to that point where I think every individual will have around about an eighty meg connection available to them, whether that's through three G or at home or wherever it is, and that's that's really not far off. 
once that happens, you know, it's, it's a question of getting the the back channels up to speed, and that's where you know ma- many many billions of of dollars and rands etc. are being spent to interconnect everything. The 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 bigger problem is, of course, you know, the speed of light. <laughs> no matter what what we do, there is we are still, you know, what twelve eleven or twelve thousand kilometers away from London. Takes a certain amount of time for uh, nine nine thousand and twenty-two, according to fine friends. <laughs> there we go, and uh, you know, so that's what a hundred milliseconds, right? Oh, and you cannot get faster than that, no matter what you do. Hmm. Yeah, because physics. Because physics. How close are we reaching uh, to reaching similar kind of physics levels inside the local machines? I mean, I just don't know. And I, I know that obviously we can't get. At some point, we've we've just gone as small as we can on on the die before the different gates start leaking to each other, and then the whole thing falls apart. But is there is there something similar than the speed of light that for local, for for copper or inside the CPU or the gold that they use? It's called the speed of light, but um, you know the speed of light is it's not light is just uh, a wave or whatever you want to however you want to think about it, and electricity is the same thing. The propagation of a signal through a copper wire follows fairly similar properties. Yeah, Lynn, I think you were telling me about a problem somewhere, and I'm probably going to butcher it now, but um, where a guy would rapidly change one set of bits in memory and that would cause uh, a parallel set of bits to flip. But that um, was from the, that's from the Google security team where they've got a, a root exploit. By, yeah, because the uh, density of the transistors in the memory chips is so high, they can just like write certain sequences to memory. And because they understand the physics of the memory chip, they can cause bit flips to happen in the, para- in the sort of next bank of memory. You know what you're doing in, in whatever kernel, like Linux kernel or whatever it is, you can uh, exploit that to get root access. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. I mean, the the problem we I I had this problem firsthand was when we built those backblaze storage pods, and we built the little um, printed circuit boards to mount the disk drives on it. And if you picture in your head a little L-shaped circuit board with the the power connectors and whatever coming in on the right hand side then sort of printed copper tracks go along and then turn left onto the L shape of the printed circuit board. And I think there were six tracks that went around the corner. So our, our initial naive thing was we just sort of bent the, the tracks around the corner in a nice circular arc, and then they hit the disk connectors, and I think we had four disks on each little printed circuit board. We had them manufactured, and we installed them, and we were running um, load testing. And every now and again, one of the disks would uh, time out or, or, or disconnect. And eventually, we figured out, through the help of some guys, that the length of the outside track was just that little bit longer, but it caused the electrical signals on the other end to be slightly out of sync. So we had to, on the inside track, put in a little extra bit to, to make it physically the same length as the outside track. No, that's an interesting problem. Yeah. It must have been a head-scratcher. 
Yeah, well, you know that if you travel around Australia, um, what's travel around clockwise, you, know, you drive around Sydney down to Melbourne, around to Perth, you do the whole like circumnavigation of Australia. If you travel cl- clockwise, mm-hmm. yeah, clockwise, it's 300 kilometers shorter than if you go uh, counterclockwise. Just to give you an, an analogy for that kind of problem. Oh, okay. I'll be- yeah, so you're on the inside of the road or the outside of the road, right? Wow. <laughs> and over that distance, difference. yeah, it, it makes, a, I think it's about a 300-kilometer distance difference. Wow. Yep. That adds up <laughs> quickly. Well, I mean, uh, is it UPS or DHL or somebody, um, one of these big couriers, like, saved like a couple of hundred million dollars a year just in the States by optimizing. Uh, they minimized left turns so that the vehicles don't have to cross intersections and wait for oncoming traffic. Same same kind of deal, I guess. Oh, right, in those they countries where like you drive on the other side of the road, right? Yeah, so, so it's cheaper for them to make like three right turns <laughs> than to make one left. I mean, not always, but that's on, like... On, on average, who, who yeah. Who thinks of that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I get... We, we we had time. Um, that was interesting and, and fascinating and, and hearing the different perspectives and the things to, to think about. Um, kind of, I guess, hopping back to the first question is like, the, how much does this stuff really matter to you guys, do you think? And uh, I'll chime in at the end. Well, from my point of view, it's incredibly important. And I think we've only just begun to really get to the meat of the problems i mean if you're if you're a big company and you've got hundreds or even thousands of servers this is a huge problem for you you know managing i mean take that paypal example we talked about earlier managing eight servers versus managing a thousand servers i'd rather manage eight servers right um i want i want servers to get bigger and more powerful Uh, you know i want mainframes back basically but i want those mainframes to be so insanely powerful (laughs) that you know they can deal with everything in one box because that just you know reduces the number of moving parts at the hardware level i want you know cpus to get millions of times faster and better i want me lower latency disk access all of the all of the rest of it i want to get to virtual reality like kevin I mean, we talked a lot about gaming problems, but they're actual real-world problems. You know, like, where do, what do we do with all the trash that we've got to deal with traffic problems, all those kinds of real problems that we need a lot more computational power to solve? Now, I reckon that um, I want to work in terms of abstractions, firstly. Uh, I don't think that it would be wise to bring someone into computer science expecting to look at, you know, we, we're going to go straight to counting um, counting the transistors on the chip, looking at circuit diagrams. Uh, I think we've very wisely built up certain abstractions over uh, the electrical engineering side of computing uh, in order to get to where we are now. And without that, we would, we'd, we'd be wasting time uh, going back to... Uh, to trying to understand problems that have already been solved and therefore uh, i think at that level it's it's less important but if we do want to go and push the edge uh if you need to understand what's behind those abstractions much like 
let's take something a bit more trivial, jQuery and the performance in a web browser. If you're not aware of what jQuery is doing internally, uh, you're going to end up writing some pretty slow code if you're trying to do anything complex. And it's only by digging into uh, what sits underneath it uh, that, that that you'll be able to figure out the, the issue and make improvements. So in order to be functional in the first place, no, I don't think it's important to uh, to dig in and know all of this stuff about electrical engineering and um, no, the, the base instruction sets and things like that that we've been discussing this evening. Uh, but if you want to go and push that edge, then yes, then you definitely need to get involved at that level. That's, that's where the gains are. That's where abstractions won't be able to for every case. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Um, yeah, I guess from my side, it's my balance of trade-offs. I think, given I agree with you, I don't now go dive into the swim in the silicone. Um, it's not beneficial. I mean, people, the cost of developers or and, and ops people, like the, the cost of people is is significantly higher. So maybe throwing just throwing faster hardware at stuff is a good start that can free up people to get more um you know, more miles out of things. Uh, like scale up first, maybe before scaling out. I mean this PayPal example is a is a is a good one. But I guess also like look around. That's what your problem demands. If you do like want to do good gaming or 3D graphics or high frequency trading, then it's really, really important that you get a grips to get, get to grips with all these things. But it's also it's, it's fascinating. Like Linda was also yeah, it was just great. I mean you've built these systems and, and like the hardware and, and seen and like a lot of interesting stuff and monitor that space. So yeah, like, yeah. thanks for sharing. I, I would just add to what you're saying. There's, um, there's a kind of rule of thumb is that you should always be working on the best hardware that you can reasonably afford. You know, the, the, the product, what, what do you call it? Your, your productivity is impacted by the speed of your systems. Yes. So like Kevin yes. was saying, like if you have to wait for your tests to run, then um, you know, spending a little bit more on, on a faster machine or getting SSDs or whatever, that just it's it's a it's a kind of brute force approach, but it will get things to go faster and it will save you money. Yeah, very true, very true. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Uh, um, ended up much longer than I thought it'd be, but it was fantastic. I kind of enjoyed the the multiple rabbit holes we plunged down. Um, I guess to close us off, uh, Pix, Kevin, you alluded that you've got some picks for us, or a pick at least. Uh, I had that one pick that I've already spoiled. <laughs> Pre-pick. Uh, that was pretty much it for me. <laughs> Let's go. Lane? Okay, actually, let, let me throw oh, one in there. Okay. okay, now that I've got one. Now it's, it's come back to me. Um, standing desks, or sit-stand desk. Get something that you can... Stand up and work out, sit down and work out, and your back will love you for it. Uh, I picked up the human scale float desk. It's a bit costly, but uh, definitely worth every cent or any, every penny in my case. Cool. Uh, Len, do you have any picks? Um, we've been doing a lot of uh, closure work recently, and the the guys from JBoss Wildfly have Immutant, which is a layer on top of all the JBoss stuff and it's really really well done I know they've got a similar thing for Ruby I forget what it is on the head where you can run Ruby on top of JBoss 
Um, but the Samutan thing is just so, so nice, and the code is, is awesome. No, that's on my side. I'm I'm pretty pickless tonight. Um, sorry for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll build up the show notes for some of these extra resources. Like, there's a ton of interesting stuff that we that seeded this whole conversation and then just took it further. So, oh, thanks everybody for the time, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, oh, chat to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.